Yes, Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning in the preaching and the proclamation of your holy word. And we pray in Jesus' name, attend us by your spirit. Amen. Open to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 14. We had a week's break with a wonderful presentation by our brother Dan Kroos last week. Um, wonderful Christmas message and his testimony in the Lord. And we'll be back in our series which I believe, what's today? Tomorrow's New Year's Day. The next day is the second. I believe the second marks two years we've been in, in Romans. You can go check, but I think it's two years now we've been in Romans. What, everybody's bored with Romans? All right, go to Galatians. I can preach from anything. I don't, I don't care what it is. Um, well, anything in the book. <laughs> No, we'll go to Romans 14. I'm going to read to you this morning verses 4 through 12. There'll be some overlap. I'll give a little review, but I really want to focus much on verse 9, which um, the apostle inserts here as a doctrinal reminder of the great accomplishments of Christ. So from verse 4, Paul writes these words, to the church of Rome. Now remember, he's writing to Christians. Salvation is assumed here. He's not talking about doing certain things or approving of certain things as a way to procure salvation. He's assuming people are saved, and yet there are still some things that have not been uh, verified by the word as either good or holy, and we regard them to be morally neutral or things indifferent. And so that's what he's talking about here. So In verse 4, he writes, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and give God, gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose again and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Father, in Jesus' name, open to us the deep meaning of this, your holy word this morning. Amen. So you can see this some review, and I'll talk again about some of the aspects of this teaching that are essential to the unity of the church today. I consider this one of the great passages of the, of the scriptures about church unity, and certainly it focuses on tolerance of one another in uh, areas of life and belief and practice that have not been laid out as right or wrong in Scripture. They are actually left up to personal preference to some degree. So let's begin with verse 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. The Lord owns us, the totality of our life. 
Since the moment we make our profession when he became real to us to the moment we meet him again in heaven and then throughout all eternity, we are the Lord's. And what we do, we have to be settled in at least our own minds and our own conscience that what we do is right to do before God. It's something we can rightly offer to him as an offering. I can eat this thing, Lord, without offending you. I can drink this, Lord, without offending you. I can take part in this festival, and I'm satisfied in my heart that it is not offensive to you, O Lord. All of these things were talked about in the early church. Paul talked about in chapter 14, right at the beginning, he who is weak in the faith, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Number one, there are doubtful things. There are not things that the Holy Spirit gave you special little uh, knowledge are wrong and everyone ought to stop doing it. See, that's called a Judaizer. I want to talk about that a little bit today. It's not in the notes, but it's something I think is important in, it, in, the, in the Bible shows. People crept in to steal people's liberties. Um, one believes he may eat all things. One believes he should eat only vegetables. There's no law on this. If you want to eat vegetables... Have at it. If you want to eat meat, have at it. But don't be at the other guy's throat over what he decided to do. Um, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat despise him who eats, for God has received him. One of the um, passages on this same um, subject is in 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul talks about food offered to idols. Now, I talked about that a lot. I'm not going to go into that a lot again this morning. But some of the food that you got in pagan cities was sacrificed to idols. It was prepared in a temple marketplace. And there was an idol standing there. And they would prepare the food. And some Christians ate it because it was the best meat and they could afford it. And other Christians didn't like that because they thought, we gave up those gods. We shouldn't eat anything sacrificed to them. But as Paul pointed out, they're not really gods at all. There's really nothing involved in this ritual and so if you're clear in your heart about it, it isn't like the meat can taint you or do something bad to you spiritually. However, if your brother's offended by it, consider not doing it, at least not in his presence. And so we've been dealing with this section of the epistle that urges the saints to make certain distinctions with regard to habits, with regard to practices, even with regard to beliefs that are not strictly laid down in Scripture. Not everything is explained. Do you ever notice when we get into certain teachings, um, the Lord's very direct and says something just very directly, and we come up with all the hypotheticals that allow us not to follow the teaching? But the Bible doesn't come up with the hypotheticals. The reason not is, I'll tell you why, it's very simple. They're endless! And they're hypothetical. We can keep making up things. Aha, but what if this happened? And the Lord doesn't play that game with us. He tells us the rule. And he expects us to respect it. And not to run right to, when is it not applicable to me? And so not everything is explained. Now I have a note that I'd like you to notice. We have here Paul, an apostle of Christ, who is writing a letter to the early church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul is writing this word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or as Danny Cross would say, can I get an amen? <laughs> He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And even he admits to certain human preferences and practices that are doubtful or indifferent. He's not saying, no, I have a special dispensation today. Nobody ought to eat this or drink that. He's not even saying that. So if they're spiritually indifferent, they are spiritually what? Inconsequential. It doesn't hurt your spirituality or your standing before God so long as in your conscience, in your mind, you can rightly do this thing before God. If you remember verse 23 at the end, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. All right, so there's a couple of rules here that we can isolate that might help us understand this better. But here we have the apostle under the inspiration of the Spirit telling us, I know a lot of things through the Spirit, but I don't know everything. 
There's really not an answer to every single question or every single possible situation that might arise in our complicated world. And so what Paul means by this is that they are doubtful and indifferent to God. Such things may be said to be morally neutral. They're not morally charged with evil, and they're not uh, morally expressive of that you're extra good because you do this thing. Now, as I said, this is not a treatment of salvation. Salvation is assumed at this point. This is for church unity. This is a plea by the apostle for church unity. It's a declaration that different people make different choices. And if it's okay with Paul, it ought to be okay with the saints at Rome. And not every choice comes with a right or wrong tag on it. Hence the plea for tolerance with regard to such things. Let him who eats, let not him who eats, despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. And as always, the apostle gives us the why of the matter. Why can't I judge him if he doesn't see things my way? Because God has received him. That's why. Very simple. So we may conclude that there are certain aspects of the Christian life that are lived solely, think about this, solely between each individual saint and his master. Now, Paul is treating a corporate issue here. We don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. We live and die and learn and praise God and pray for each other as a unit. We are to grow together till what? We all come to the unity of the faith and the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ to a perfect man, right? We grow as a body, yet there are parts of our um, walk with God that are between us and God. And so certain aspects of the Christian life are lived solely between each individual saint and his master. For we read, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And then Paul adds this, indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. My commentary here is able means willing. That's why he said God will make him stand, because he's able. Able means willing here. God is willing and able to make each one stand even in matters of personal preference, personal conscience, or personal level of understanding. Are you with me so far? Right. Since Paul also makes the distinction between weaker and stronger brethren with regard to understanding of spiritual matters, when he says the weaker brother eats only vegetable, he doesn't mean he's less of a Christian. He means weaker in understanding of certain things. We're all at different levels of understanding, but the whole church has to come in growth together as a body. We're the body of Christ. That's why we have the gifts, to make sure no one gets left out. Right? Reach out to one another. So we come to different levels of understanding of spiritual matters, really at our own pace, maybe our own intellectual pace, maybe our own emotional pace. Some of us have been um, extremely emotionally impaired because of a difficult past or abuse in our past lives, and it takes us longer to reconcile certain things um, in our daily lives than other people. I had pretty good parents. In fact, I would say um, all the bad things that happened to me were my fault and because I didn't listen to them. Not because I did. Um, But I do want to say, greater understanding does lead to greater freedom in the body of Christ. And that a particular saint's fear of certain practices may be a matter of defective understanding. He hasn't come to the point yet. Paul says all things are, are clean. Nothing's unclean of itself. Some people haven't come to that. And I talked about that as some of the um, definition of superstition, which, which I'll touch on again today. And so Paul explains by saying in verse 4, I know and am convinced by the Lord. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. 
And this is where I digressed last week and talked about superstition. And superstition is what? It's like a self-imposed religion based on fear that evil can exist in this microphone. Microphones are evil, and a man ought to be able to speak to crowds without it. You see what I've done? I've given the microphone some kind of power that it doesn't have. We do that with, with all sorts of things. We do that with statues. Oh, certainly, the pagan is worshiping the statue as God, or at least representative of God, but we know there's no God. We know there's no, the Philistines worship Dagon. We know there's no real Dagon, right? So if you're starving and you, all you have is meat sacrificed to Dagon, as long as your conscience is clear about it, have at it. <laughs> So that's what it is. Superstition is a false religion we create in our minds by ascribing spiritual powers to inanimate things or things that have no power in and of themselves, but the power we invest in them. Therefore, the man of weaker or lesser understanding is not to be troubled by those who disagree with him on these issues. And the freedom of the stronger is not to be imposed or flaunted in the face of the weaker. And now remember this. These terms, weaker and stronger, are Paul's terms, not mine. All right? I'm going along with them. Because generally speaking, when somebody has problems with your freedom, it's because they think they are stronger and more spiritually mature, and it may actually be the opposite. As an example of these practices, he refers to two things, eating and the preparation of certain foods, as well as the celebration of certain feast days. Did you know... That Christmas, which you all love so much, was outlawed in Massachusetts until, I believe, 1854. With um, pretty significant fines. Fines for what? Having a Christmas tree, dressing nice on the 25th. Really, it was all listed. You can, you can find these writings, the uh, Puritan writings. Um, it remained a blue law in the country until in the mid-1850s. And... Um, you know, giving of gifts to each other, mistletoe, trees, all these things were considered pagan, and they are. That's where they came from. Um, but can you imagine, I'm the weaker brother, and I come to you and I say, you know, you people all celebrate Christmas and you have a very good time of it, but um, it offends me that you do that. I wish the church would stop. You know, I think we think today that that's where we have to go as the stronger brother, and I don't think that's what I'm seeing here at all. I'm seeing there a tyranny of the weak, a tyranny of the minority. There's a give and take here that Paul's trying to show a balance for. Surely we can see that a converted Gentile may have many such days that he harmlessly celebrates. Right? Having believed, he may decide for himself that some of those practices ought to be curtailed for conscience' sake. All right? I gave up Halloween. Now, I'm not offended that you have your Halloween time. I'm really not. But I gave it up because I couldn't reconcile it. It's, it seems to me it's all focused on death and ghoulish things. And I thought, I can sort of, I can baptize Easter. I can baptize Christmas, although those both came from other pagan cultures. But we can sort of bring them in under the guise of something Christian, right? Um, you know, you talk to an unbeliever about this, and right away they think that it's all mentioned in the Bible, which, of course, there isn't a word of it. The word Easter was used once in the King James, and it was used erroneously. It should never have been there. And it was struck, and, and Passover was put in its place. All right? So you can see the Western world had a tendency to anglicize things for ourselves. But um, a converted Gentile might have many feast days that a Jew would find anathema and would think were horrible things. Um, but as the Gentile grew in faith, he might think, you know, there is a horrible aspect of these things. Maybe I'll put them aside. And a converted Jew surely celebrates days unheard of to Gentiles, right? Certainly a right understanding of Passover should lead a new convert to recognizing that the symbolism of the sacrifice of the display of blood is fulfilled in Christ. Friends, we don't celebrate Passover for a very obvious reason. Christ died once for all, and Passover is a symbol and a pointer to that future event when Christ would die, but he's already died. So we don't sacrifice something as though we still need to do that. But the early Christians 
excuse me, didn't know that immediately when they got saved. They still saw themselves as practicing this. In fact, I have made the argument that that's perhaps why God finally destroyed that temple, because Passover just kept going on and on, even though it was fulfilled with Christ on the cross. It was an abomination to God to continue to sacrifice in his name, you see. That's what the mass of the Catholic Church is, is modeled after, a continual sacrifice of Christ, a re-crucifying of Christ to put him to an open shame, according to the book of Hebrews. Um, but when the Bible is not your authority, and different men elected to office throughout the years are the authority, you take on these different beliefs and views. Um, that's the difference between the Catholic and Protestant views, or I should say the Catholic and Bible-believing evangelical. You used to be able to say evangelical, and it meant Bible-believing evangelical. I'm not sure it means that today. See, words change. But a Bible-believing person knows that only the Word of God is authoritative on spiritual matters, right? And there's no other contender for that. In the Catholic world, the Pope has that position, and the, and the Bible is relegated to his view of it, all right? So I make that distinction. So certainly the, these disparate groups that came into the church at this time would have different, um, uh, different diets, different practices, different rituals that to God were not important unless they offended someone else in the body. All right? So a Jew with the right knowledge of Passover would look down on the brother who's not yet come to terms with that knowledge and so the writings of Romans 14 would be for him. As we read in the book of Ephesians, till we all come to the unity of faith. Friends, we can't all come in unity by ourselves. You have to all come in unity together. And this is what Paul repeatedly speaks about. This, this teaches on church unity in every single writing of Paul. Church unity is important. Uh, and there's times when churches, there should be schism, but it shouldn't be over things indifferent or doubtful things, all right? And so we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The churches should stay together and work this out to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's quite a high bar. So when someone marches out of the church because you do something they don't like or the church won't say that's wrong or evil, and they want you to say that, and they march out, I guess in their own minds they think they've come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and the rest of us haven't. It's the apostles' aim that the local churches march toward the day of the Lord in unity. I really don't want to be one of those guys. You know, I had a friend say to me the other day, I've been to every church on the, in New England, but every church on the East Coast, and I thought, why is that a good thing? In other words, you're accountable to none. You've gone in, you've judged them all, and you've moved on. And I guess in the day of judgment, you walk up there alone, you'll see all these masses of people from their local congregations marching to the judgment alone. You'll be like, so be it. I don't have a church. I'm alone. I don't know how that's going to stand with the Lord. We are the body of Christ, and the body has many and diverse parts. No, I think... The church is not an ancillary teaching of the New Testament. Every letter Paul wrote was to a church, and the ones that weren't to a church were written to pastors of churches, except Philemon, who was a host of a church at his house. Everything was evolved around the church. We are the body of Christ. We are to mature as a body. Are you looking at your notes? I could say what Paul said in Galatians. See with what large letters I wrote this to you body we are to mature as a body and not seek to grow alone as dismembered parts of the body you know that guy who's walking alone to christ you know what part of the body he is he's the mouth enough said now as i've said repeatedly with regard to the new testament that such things are partial and representative feast days and and food offered to idols. These are representative. There are other things that could happen. Paul's using this as an example. Um, and it in no way contains every conceivable, conceivable thing that believers may find reason 
either to hold or to object to. So surely our modern society has come up with new inconsequential things to disagree about and to fight over. We've come up with new inconsequential things, right? Such as head coverings. Um, listen, I, I know the passage on head coverings. I know what it says. Um, you know, it seems like a lot of times you'll go to a place and there'll be one person with a head covering. And that's fine with me. It's never bothered me. We were at a conference the other day. Everyone was there. There was one lady with, that wore a head covering. I understand that. Um, and I think she probably did it in a right view, convinced in her own mind that she was right before God. And I'm perfectly fine with that because I've been treated to the wisdom of Romans 14. Um, but that's one of the areas um, head coverings, types of music. You know, that's something you don't see in the New Testament. No one's fighting over the music. That's a big issue today. You know, especially because music in our culture, we, we, we gauge everything as Americans. We've, this is why you have me. No, this is why you have preachers to exegete the word and tell you what it meant in the culture to which it was originally written. It wasn't written to people who had rights. And opinions about everything. Types of music in our culture are generational. I'll never forget Pastor Ken making fun of people. He goes, 60 years old, and they're like this in the church. He just didn't like, that was sort of a generational thing. Older people were more demure. And I have no problem with it. I'm just saying that you've got to come to consensus on some of these things. Types of music. Or the prevalence of music over the prevalence of preaching. You know, I may have told you I went to a church in Long Island some years ago. There was a lot of people. There was um, a lot of singing. You came in, the music was going, electric guitars, tambourines, girls. The whole thing was going on, and it went on, and it went on, and it went on. There was a big screen, and there were words, and there were elephants and pictures of all kinds of things. I just remember it was talking about Africa or something. It had all these different pictures and words going by because no one reads music anymore so you put the words up and hope they know the tune and um it kept going on and on and on and um finally i sat down and people were like urging people who sat down to stand up like, okay so um now you know me you know i won't stand once you tell me I, it's going to be hard for me but um because i'm i'm skeptical I want us to be skeptical of authority. But all of a sudden, in the midst of the music, a man came up in a sort of a leisure suit, you know, no tie. That's the thing, and that's fine. I don't care. Don't tell me what James said about fine apparel and all that stuff. And he came up, and he stood in front of this little plexiglass podium, and he had a little stool, and he sat on the stool, and he said, forgive me for interrupting the worship. And he preached... A message for eight minutes. Forgive me for interrupting the worship. Friends, right worship to God contains certain things. In my opinion, which is the opinion of the reformers who I trust, preaching is the principal part of worship. You are listening to my words who I pray are God's teachings, but you are worshiping God by doing that. You don't have to sway and clap to be worshiping God, and I don't say that's not worshiping God. We just read, hold up holy hands to the Lord, right? Hands are holy, hold them up. But these are the things we've created today to talk about. You know, when I came into the church, it was smoking and drinking. We argued about smoking in the new permissive society. I guess we have to talk about pot smoking. It's illegal now. Is it wrong? Some will say yes, some will say no. Some Christians smoke pot, some don't. (gasps) I'm aghast. Um, So we have to revisit some of these things if they come up. The celebration of Christmas and Easter have always been issues in the church. Um, Halloween, certainly. Other festivals. I've heard people have a problem with Thanksgiving. (laughs) Um. Certainly the drinking of alcohol has been a testy practice in the modern age, a thing we see no real parallel to from the biblical age where wine was simply a part of life and devotion to God. Even to the extent that wine's been co-opted as an element in the Lord's Supper. 
I hope to treat some of these issues before we depart from the chapter, but these are some of the things that come up today. Um, so the warning of the chapter is that we're not to turn things indifferent into life and death matters. We're not to foment disunity over doubtful things. That is, things left unexplained. We're not to walk out of the local body over minor insignificant issues. But you know what? Insignificant issues aren't always insignificant to the one who holds them. It takes teaching. We are to learn to discern between things that are essential and things that are not essential. That takes teaching, understanding. You know what else it takes? Patience. It also takes presence, being there when the word's taught. You know, we have a thing today. It's called confirmation bias. We only listen to media that will confirm everything we already believe. We are the epitome of preaching to the choir today. I don't even think we like sharing the gospel with people who don't hold our political views today. Maybe that's part of the problem. Um. But until we reach acceptable conclusions, we are to obey our conscience in all things. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Verses 22 and 23. So conscience. Conscience is a difficult thing to explain. It's sort of an inner voice, right? Everyone has one. Some people, Paul says, have seared it. They don't care what they do anymore. Nothing bothers their conscience. They sleep fine after they've mass murdered or something. Conscience has the last word, friends, in the moment. Knowledge and discernment have the last word in the long term. Conscience changes according to truth and understanding. Right? Paul wrote to the Philippians of this very thing. He said, For this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. He doesn't say, I hope your love will abound more and more in a sound and right conscience. He says that your love will abound more and more in knowledge. Even love is increased by understanding the love of Christ and discerning. Love from what is not love. That you may approve the things that are excellent. Some things are excellent. But you need knowledge to know what they are. You need discernment to know what they are. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know something. I'm I'm not defending certain liberties. I should tell you... um, my, you know, my, some of my go-to commentators, like John Calvin, for one, right? And certainly Martin Lloyd-Jones of late, and certainly with the Book of Romans, um, because he's done so much work on it. But if you were to go through here and watch him defend um, Christian liberties, you would think he was a drinker. He's not. He never was. He actually has to come out and say it, and he says in one place, he said, you probably think I'm a drinker because of what I'm saying. I'm not. I'm just saying it's not in and of itself an evil thing, and I can't stand here and tell people not to do it. But you would have thought, listening to him, that it was the same thing. Same is true with John MacArthur. Um, So they're not, and I'm not, defending certain practices. I'm just saying some of them are things indifferent, things personal. So the apostle warns his beloved disciple to beware of such people who are not developing with regard to knowledge. Okay? He speaks of those who are tossed to and fro. You've heard that from Ephesians, right? Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, right? And to Timothy he writes that men become lovers of themselves, loaded down with sins, led away by lust. You remember that language, right? And then he adds that such people are what? Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It eludes them. Now, in my view, those are people that are fighting against the truth. Lovers of themselves. You see? Beware that not to be that. Because now he's talking about the non-Christian. The Christian comes to the knowledge of the truth. 
It's the unbeliever that can't make it all the way. In other words, conscience or no conscience, truth has the last word. And there are certain necessary things that true believers must practice in order not only to obey God, but to become acceptable members of a local church. Friends, in the local church, there's certain things you can't do. You can't be a practicing homosexual. You know, the church is so uncomfortable with that over the years. But you see, that's because people judged it in their conscience. And it's not a non-essential. It's an essential. Doctrine has told us that is a wrong thing. I'm going to go to the verse that says it. But see, that's what happened. If I was left to my own conscience, I would have come up with a lot of liberal views. But then I go to the word of God and say, well... I would have thought, let a person love who he wants. Now, I'm not talking now. I've been the faith 30 years. But when I first came in, I wouldn't have had any great antipathy toward that. But God does. You know? So my doctrine... See, I tell people, when you, when you have a faith, you don't get to make every moral judgment for yourself. Some of them are already made. Right? You can't be a homosexual. You can't live with your girlfriend. You can't do all these different things that... People just think they can do because their conscience thinks they're okay with it. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so there's a lengthy list of beliefs and practices that are not doubtful things. And such things cannot be determined by anyone's conscience, weak or strong, but are spelled out in Scripture. And so to Timothy, he talks about them. Fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. You can't say... Well, in my conscience, I was told to be a kidnapper. And I don't think you ought to judge me in it. Um, I thought kidnappers was an odd thing to put there, but kidnappers, liars, perjurers, if there's any other thing that's contrary to what? Sound doctrine. Doctrine has the last word. Conscience has the word in unessential things. Doctrine has the word in essential things. That's why preachers are told to be dogmatic in certain essential areas of the Christian life. And so Paul wrote to one preacher, preach the word, be ready in season, be ready out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort. These are forms of teaching and preaching, right? Do it with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. You know, you could say according to their own conscience there, if you like. Although sometimes we desire things and do them that are against our conscience. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned to fables. And so just as certain as fornication and homosexuality are not acceptable, whether a person pleads his conscience or not, he must repent as part of his Christian growth. See, I believe this whole new movement to accept, I, I, I'm going to tell you this, I said this the Bible study, I'll, I'll say it here, I think it all began with gender roles. Like the original one, so you know, wives be submissive to your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. You depart from that, right away you're into homosexuality, not so bad. I mean, you know, it's an it's a innocuous thing. It's not that bad. We've sort of grown out of the old mosaic law, you know, wants people to do certain things. Um, we think we've grown out of it, and as a matter of conscience, and because we think it's kindness to accept sin, we do it. We ought to be tolerant, but not of sin, you see. So with regard to eating meats offered to idols, so long as his conscience urges him against it, he must refrain, and if not, he may partake. Note, beware of the brother or sister who pleads the leading of the Spirit in areas that are clearly forbidden in the Word. That's when you become lovers of yourselves and take on the authority of God. Verse 9, for to this end, what end? Unity of the church. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Now this verse carries with it the fullness of the gospel. Why did he suddenly insert this? 
Because everything for Paul goes back to doctrine. It goes back to teaching. It goes back to remembering the, the primary things, the truths that we're really about, not these little things about food and feast days, right? It speaks of what? The death of Christ. For to this end, Christ died. It speaks of the resurrection of Christ and lived and rose again. It speaks of the resurrection of Christ. It speaks of the dominion of Christ is poured out into both worlds, the living and the dead. It speaks of the lordship of Christ. And so it's safe to say that the verse contains in it the full essence of gospel truth. This verse is the gospel. Right? It's a creed. And so the question arises, why did Paul insert this creed into his treatise on tolerance? Because there's a bigger issue at play. And we don't know when the end's coming. It's ticking away. Unlike me, you can't hear your heart tick away. I can because I have an artificial valve that warns me life's going on tick by tick, beat by beat. It's a great gift. And so the question arises, why did Paul insert this? It's because it's the gospel. We're to remember who we are in Christ all the time. In fact, the Christian is above the law, friends. It's not about do this, do that. That's paganism. That's humanism. When we want to add up all the good things we do that we see are good in our sight and say that I deserve heaven. The Christian's above the law, above any humanistic moral code of ethics. Now, I know we just talked about Romans 13, so don't confuse this. We obey the law, but we do it with delight because God wants us to. But we're above the law. It speaks of the lordship of Christ, and so it, it's safe to say that the verse contains in it the essence of the gospel. So the Christian is above the law. He's above any humanistic moral code of ethics. That's why Paul could say this to Timothy. Know this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. But the ungodly, or rather for the ungodly and for sinners, for the holy and profane. And so this verse is a reminder that we don't wallow in areas of no consequences. That's what the Judaizers try to impose on the church. We must recall that there are greater concerns than eating and drinking. Do you remember? I won't turn, well, I don't think I'll bother turning there. Romans, I mean, uh, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul circumcised Timothy. Do you remember that? Timothy was, his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, right? He circumcised Timothy. Why would he do that? He said in the book of Galatians, that you shouldn't do that. And he wouldn't circumcise Titus when the Judaizers said to. Um, it's an interesting comparison, an interesting study to go look at. People have accused Paul of being hypocritical. He circumcised Timothy um, so that that wouldn't be the objection to his Jewish brothers coming to Christ. But in Antioch, or in other places where we talked to the Galatians about it, where they were demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised, he would not do it. It was going too far for him. And it became an, what was an unessential thing. Friends, you can be circumcised or not circumcised. It doesn't matter to God in terms of spirituality or membership in the kingdom, right? But when you make it that, Paul can't deal with it anymore. He has to say no to it. In fact, I'll read you that from Galatians, just so we get the idea that we take this, but only so far. Let me see if I can do this. Um, yeah, chapter 2 at the beginning. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty. Aha! 
Look what they're doing in that church, right? Which we have in Christ that they might bring us into bondage. We're not to be brought back into bondage one ritual at a time, one preference at a time. To whom we did not yield submission for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. It's powerful. In one case, he circumcised, in the other, he refused. And it was based on the reaction of the body with an eye toward unity. If you want to study that out, you can, but the commentators run the gamut on that argument. Um, So we're not to wallow in areas of no consequence. We must recall that there are greater concerns than eating and drinking. And so Paul wrote, Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So where eating and drinking are not important matters of faith, friends, righteousness, peace, and joy are important matters. We're not to rob them of one another. Don't rob the joy of your brother or sister in Christ simply because they eat and drink things that you wouldn't eat or drink. Some of you guys eat and drink things I wouldn't wouldn't touch. If the Lord comes today, we who are justified before him will go with him in the state he finds us when he comes. And I'm sure I eat and drink things you wouldn't touch. (laughs) These are preferences. Your approval or disapproval of your fellow servant will have no effect on his place in the kingdom. Remember I told you about my pastor friend who believed that we're going to have this interim rapture? You know, it's a big teaching and dispensational theology today, and I don't take that view. Yeah, we're raptured, I think, at the end. He thinks in the middle somewhere. And so we had this view, but, I, but he was so strong in it, I said to him, um, now, if you're right, I, and I hope you are, let's go. I said, but I don't believe in the rapture, but I still go. My salvation isn't based on my belief of the inconsequential thing of when the rapture occurs, since nobody can seem to figure it out, right? Thank God it doesn't, you know, I believe in the same Christ you believe in. So if, if the rapture comes sooner like you think, I'll be right next to you going, I'm so glad you're right. Right? Well, we're going up to heaven on the clouds. <laughs> Can I get an hallelujah? Amen. <laughs> ah, Cal had an amen. So, your approval or disapproval of your fellow servants will have no effect on his place in the kingdom. And Paul's reminding us of that with this verse. He's already been approved by his master and by your master. And whether he lives or dies, he does it to the Lord. For Jesus Christ is Lord of all saints living and dead. I made the point in times past that when I came into the church some 30 years ago, the big concerns with regard to Christian deportment was smoking and drinking. 30 years ago, that was a big deal. People that smoked were looked upon as lesser. Well, the Holy Spirit, they hadn't have a strong enough dose of the Holy Spirit to put that away yet. And I saw people, you know, worried about that in their own walk with Christ. And eventually I saw people give it up, which I thought was great. Friends, I'm not advocating smoking. I don't like it. I've never done it. I did all the other things, but I didn't do that. Gambling was a big thing. I also don't do that. I've never played the lottery. Lottery was a big thing. Shouldn't play the lottery, we were told. Don't go to a casino. I have never been to a casino. Actually, in my youth, I think I traveled through Vegas and went into one. But um, card playing... That was a big evil in the church. I remember one time I was in a meeting. Uh, I think it was an evening service Yeah, at one of the local churches. And there was a well-known preacher there, and he was talking about his service in the nursing homes. And he said, I won't mention his name. Some of you would know him. But um, he said, he was just talking, and he said, you know, I got this guy saved, and he was preaching the word to his friends, and he was reading the word. And I... And I left there and I didn't come back for several months and when I came back he was sitting around a table playing cards with his friends and drinking a glass of wine and I thought and my first instinct was oh good so he's still he's still okay he's still um 
you know, just relaxing with his friends, enjoying their company. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's the evangelical church of the 80s. Drinking wine and playing cards is anathema. This guy's totally fallen off the, off the spiritual bandwagon. That's what he was saying. And I, I, I thought to myself, yeah, that's what he's talking about. Card playing. Horrible thing. Have you heard this? Some of you younger people have never heard. Oh, yeah, you're not supposed to play cards. Uh, we may have all various opinions on such things. You know, you know I'm not a game player, so I don't have to worry about all these things. I won't play cards with you anyway. Perhaps we may believe that it's important to point out the dangers or the inherent sinfulness of such things. But while the churches were decrying the lottery and smoking and adultery, or, or smoking rather, while they were decrying these things, adultery and divorce were dramatically, dramatically on the rise. These are the real things the church should be concerned about. The only reason I hate the lottery, by, by the way, is because when I'm standing behind a guy at the convenience store who has to order 10 tickets, scratch them, and give them back before I get to just pay for my Coke and leave. That bothers me. Every now and then I say something, but being a Christian, not allowed. Uh, friends, while they were kicking card players and ticket scratches out of the church, people were fornicating and adulterating and cohabitating. Homosexuality became acceptable during that time. Ordination of women. It was the plan of Satan, or rather, if it was the plan of Satan, he was very strategic in his execution of making us focus on card playing when the real issue was divorce, adultery. And so Paul, it seems to me, drops this doctrinal depth charge into the conversation to remind the saints of the glorious victories that we all can celebrate in Christ and what Christ accomplished by dying. Lloyd-Jones loves to point out that it's the business of the world to make moral rules and concessions. It's the love of the ungodly to focus upon behaviors. But for them, there's no authority. So they make up what's right or wrong. There's no doctrinal basis for such conclusions. Not so for the believer. The Christian does this or that because the Lord God's authoritative statement on the matter. Practical living is based on authoritative teaching. Paul says as much in this chapter where he refers to the motive behind the things that we choose to do. Remember we talked about that? It's not sometimes the thing you do, it's the reason you do it. That matters to God. And so he writes this. He who observes the day. Observes it to the Lord. In other words. You can't say. I'm going to celebrate this feast day. But I know it's really not a Christian thing to do. So I'm not going to. During the time I'm celebrating. I won't. You know. Say. You know. Offer it to God. The thing you do. You ought to be able to offer to God. He says. He who observes the day. Observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe it. To the Lord, he does not observe it. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Motive matters. So what verse 9 is telling us is that the death and resurrection of Christ gave him authority over all things. And for us, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This is the great New Testament truth. In Jesus' time in the flesh, he did not claim personal authority. Did you notice? I'll give you an example. John chapter 5. I can of myself do nothing, he said. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. That's true for all of us. We don't have authority. But as long as you're doing what God says, at least we'll do the right thing. Right? And having conquered death in the grave, he's able to say this later on in the resurrection, Matthew 28, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. These things the Lord may say, I am he that liveth, Revelation, right? And was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of hell and of death. He earned that power and that right. So it seems the apostle is intent upon us learning that the Lord Jesus Christ earned the power he now holds by dying and defeating death. 
It's essential to his sovereignty. It's essential to his authority. Observe the implication of the verse. Jesus would not be the Lord of death apart from his coming into the world to die and to rise from the death, having conquered it. You might ask, how did the Lord's death save us? Well, the first, the obvious answer is the resurrection. He rose again. Friends, death could not hold him. He came into the world as we came, a man under the law. If we die, the, the law will hold us in death. We've, we've broken the law, right? And so we... Um, but unlike his death, unlike us, rather, death could not hold him because the law could not righteously convict him. Right? So he rose. It's almost like it was a built-in cosmic principle. If an innocent man died, death had done the wrong thing. The judge had to raise him up again. It was an improper conviction. He was put in prison wrongfully, right? One passage in Hebrews talks about death is prison. And so in this manner, he defeated death. It's no longer, it no longer has a, a hold upon any whom he has sovereignly designated to be free of it. You are as free from death as Jesus was. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And here's one of the greatest victories of Christ being crucified and resurrected. Our faith has given us power over death. He defeated the grave so that even we may spit in the face of death. And so we read, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this moral has put on, this mortal rather, has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And we can say with the prophets, Isaiah and Hosea, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It can't hold you because the sun's made you free. Paul's reminding us that you're arguing about these things, and this is the benefit you have in Christ. So having defeated the grave for himself, he defeated it for the rest of us. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Lloyd-Jones preached that as a result of sin the sin of one man, Adam, right? And he says, and I quote, the grave has held the whole of humanity in its thraldom. Everybody fears death. And in its power and under its tyranny. As we have seen, there was not a single man or woman who could defeat death in the grave, he wrote. This was universal defeat for the whole of humanity. Adam's sin that brought death upon us. So when when the infant church was immersed, that is, baptized in the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, what did the apostle Peter preach? He preached these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible that it could, be, that it could hold him. It was not possible that he could be held by death. That's the gospel. And so Christ is risen. And so Christ is given power over death itself. That still leaves the question, what's in it for me? All right, Christ rose up. He's free. It couldn't hold him. But what about me? Why is that a good message for me? Paul offers the answer to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Christ is not the only one to rise above the grave. He's not the only one to defeat death and the fear of it. He's just the first. So he said to Agrippa, the king, one of the grandsons of Herod, he said, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day 
witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. You can't be the first if there's no one else. You're just the only. And for those of you who are not yet certain of your own power over death, your own power over temptation, you know, we talk about temptation, friends. We have power over temptation. When you yield to temptation, it isn't because the temptation was so great. It's because you chose to yield. Because you have the power of the Spirit of God to resist it. Here I am, writes the writer of Hebrews. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We're released from the bondage of the fear of death. But we, it's one of those gifts of grace that we rarely, rarely take hold of. He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil has no power over you, except influence, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And if you followed the teaching of the book of Romans, we're the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. For in that he himself had suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. This is why he inserted Verse 9, Romans 14. Father, we ask that you give us a full revelation of this, your holy word, the promises of God, the accomplishments of Christ in our behalf, and the powers he has given us to wield, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.